Hello, listeners. Today's recording may involve some strong language and some adult themes. It might not, but uh, I've met these people. I think it's going to. Hello and welcome to Comic Cuts, the panel show. My name's Kev F. Sutherland. You might know me as a writer, an artist for Beano, Marvel Comics, Oink, Viz, Red Dwarf, Doctor Who, and my graphic novel adaptations of Shakespeare. But chances are you probably don't. My guests, my, my guests, <laughs> yes, good. Let's laugh at Kev doing himself <laughs> down. My guests today talking comics are Peter Hogan and Bethany Black. Hello. Hiya. Comic Cuts. We're looking at a panel and we comprise a panel. There's a few of us. So the panel sees a panel and we talk about the comics from the panel we discuss and we call it Comic Cuts. I really like that. <laughs> really? I have two guests with me today who've brought with them a panel from a comic or something close. We're going to see if we can identify it and talk about it. Maybe we and you will learn something about comics we didn't already know. Or maybe we'll just show off and have a bit of an enjoyable chat. Let us see. Joining me from, might I guess, London is Peter Hogan. Is that where you are, Peter? No, used to be. But uh, about 12 years ago, I moved down to Tunbridge Wells, which is kind of like South London. It's just very south. (laughs) Now, it's got the cliche, hasn't it? Annoyed of Tunbridge Wells. Have you met many of them? <laughs> no, because it's it's bollocks, basically. I mean, virtually everybody we know here moved down here from London. Now, I'm looking at the CV for you, Peter, and it's incredible. I didn't know that Pete Townsend asked you to set up a bookshop once upon a time. How did yeah, that happen? It's true. it's true. Well, I knew Pete, and uh, he had a small book, uh, publishing company and he wanted to open a bookshop. And I was the only bookseller he knew, in all probability. So um, that's that's how it happened. And then from, you know, after once I'd done that, I moved over to Pete's publishing company to produce books on rock music for the world. Eel Pie Publishing. Now, what's the derivation of Eel Pie? Often wondered. It's from Eel Pie Island, which is a, a place in the Thames at Twickenham, right, right opposite where Pete was living at the time. It had a hotel on it, which was uh, where lots of bands like the Rolling Stones and you know Manfred Mann and wherever it was. It was big in the early sixties. <laughs> you have to be talking about the early sixties when you name drop Manfred Mann. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good band. Because uh, a lot of your career, well, in fact, most chronologically, was the music business, wasn't it? Working as the press officer for Rough Trade for the Smiths. Yes, that's true. Plugging REM when they came over. Yeah, that was uh, around about the time of their third album. They did a small British tour that I was on. And then they played this huge gig in Milton Keynes supporting U2, uh, which also had the Ramones on it. So I got, I got to hang out with the Ramones, which was oh, wow. great fun. Because they really are like living cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> now, your first comics work that I was aware of was your 2000 AD work. And what yeah. I didn't realise is that I think you have the unique distinction of being one of the only people to have work in 2000 AD under the name Alan Smithy. Yes. Is that right? Why <laughs> yeah. was that? Why was that? Um, it's because the editor changed. And uh, should I name names? Yeah, why not? David yeah. Bishop came in and basically fired me and acted like a general twat about the whole thing. <laughs> um, and, um, and you know, told me that he was, he was going to, you know, savagely edit my work and, uh, you know, cut it to shreds and all the rest of it, in which case I said, okay, take my name off it. Oh, he was just throwing his weight around. I think it was first day on the job. But, you know, um, it was just completely unnecessary. So I said, take my name off it. And he, he said, well, you know, what name shall we put on? And I said, well, okay, well, 
the Hollywood thing. If you disown something, then you're Alan Smithy. So we'll go with that. You've made your piece with 2000 in more recent years and and have returned to their pages. Yes, yes. I did a, a thing with Brendan McCarthy a year or two ago, which was great fun, which I did basically as a, a chance to work with Brendan. And since 2011... Resident Alien, because yes. you are, of course, the creator of uh, the, the source material, the, uh, you and Steve Parkhouse, the creators of Resident yeah. Alien. I mean, how do you feel True. about the TV series? It, well, long story short, I really like it, um, because although it's very different from the comic, it's like they've kind of um, they've taken the same kind of uh, premise and just gone in a completely different direction with it. Um, so it's it's not very faithful, but it's kind of faithful in a bizarre way in terms of the spirit of the thing. You know, Chris Sheridan has come up with something that's, you know, that's very kind of uh, very warm. It's about being uh, human. It's it's a lot of the things that we do in the comic, you know, and it's he's got, you know, there's more of a humor angle there, whereas um you know the comic is more serious um but uh, but it's really enjoyable and it's really well done so you know i'd far rather have that than have something that was faithful but bad i mean i, I always knew that there would be people that you know like the comic but not the tv show or like the tv show and not the comic um but the the way it's turned out it seems to be that most people like both which again is a result and I would count myself in that camp, which, bringing me to my second guest, there is an overlap. Uh, okay. There are two TV shows competing for, genuinely, and I'm not saying this because of who's on today, uh, <laughs> competing for my favourite TV show of 2021. Uh, one of them is Resident Alien, genuinely, because it's such a successful TV show in being uh, a family-friendly, accessible show. The other show was uh, written by the person who in their last Channel 4 TV show, <laughs> had uh, my next guest as an actor. My next guest was in author of It's a Sin's Russell T. Davis's last <laughs> Channel 4 series, Cucumber and Banana, and she is Bethany Black. Hello, Beth. Hiya. How you doing? You all right? <laughs> that was a really, like, really convoluted way of going, she's not been on telly for a while. <laughs> I tell you, though, the coup that Beth has pulled off, and I don't know if anybody else has pulled this off, you have been in a Russell T. Davis and you've been in a Stephen Moffat because you've yeah. yours. You were in Doctor Who when yeah. Stephen Moffat was at the helm, and it was written by Mark Gatiss. That's a triple yeah. whammy. Yeah, a triple, which meant I got to spend a full day in a recording studio in London with Mark Gatiss whilst we went over uh, all of the ADR for the episode because uh, because all of those spaceships in Doctor Who are made of wood. <laughs> so, so they creak an awful lot. So you have to re-record everything that you say. Yeah, I'm very, very lucky in both of those things. I mean, the connection between the two of them is that Andy Pryor is the casting director for both of them. And like Cucumber and Banana was my first uh, TV acting role. I'd never wanted, well, I'd wanted to act when I was growing up. And then I met drama students. And uh, <laughs> and so I became a stand-up comedian instead. And um, and so I'd kind of given up on that entirely. And then I had like the worst 18 months of my life where just one thing after another went wrong. And I was, I'd actually literally on the day that I got in touch with them about the audition, because they ended up doing an open casting for the role that I got. Um, I had phoned the Citizens Advice Bureau that morning to find out how you declare bankruptcy uh, because I was like that poor. And otherwise, I wouldn't have gone for it. I was like, well, what have I got to lose? Uh, apparently, it costs uh, over £500 to fill out the forms for bankruptcy, which uh, I didn't have. Otherwise, I... <laughs> 
wouldn't have been claiming bankruptcy. And then when <laughs> when I spoke to them about that, they said, well, can you not borrow it? I'm like, what do you think got me in this trouble in the first place? Oh. Um, I went in and I got the role. It's like big role as well in a, in, a, yeah. in a big prestigious sort of TV series. And I arrived there. Um, I got out of the cab that they'd ordered for me. And Andy Pryor, the casting director, was stood outside. Uh, I think he just nipped out for a cigarette or something and, and and said, oh, do you want to come in? Like, don't worry about a read through because like a lot of people do get nervous. And I was like, oh, I didn't realise you were supposed to be nervous. Like, I'm a stand up. I've been on stage without any script at all. Having to make up what I'm going to say to try and make like 3000 people at a music festival laugh. Uh, so this seems quite easy, all things considered. And I just said to him, you know, oh, yeah, no, I, I yeah, I kind of I know what read throughs are like. I've seen enough Doctor Who confidential for that. And he went, oh, <laughs> oh, you a Doctor Who fan? I said, yeah, he went, oh, I cast that. And I had to act surprised and went, oh, oh, really? Do you? He said, yeah, do you want to be in it? And I went, yeah, please. And he went, ah, I'll keep an eye out for, for a role that's suitable for you. And about a year later, he got in touch and went, I think I've got the one. Do you want to come and audition for it? So it was great. Didn't you stump uh, Mark Gatiss with a question about Doctor Who, about whether the show was set in the 38th century? Yeah. And, and like it was one of those things that ended up in Doctor Who magazine and various other places because Mark Gatiss had written this episode and it was set on a space station that's orbiting Pluto that's falling out of orbit and is about to get crushed under its own weight. And it's set at the same time as The Sunmakers, which is set on Pluto. Um, I realised, because I've been watching The Sunmakers the week before we started shooting, and all of the guns are the same design. And so I was like, oh, right, okay, so it was based on that, was it? And he was like, um, I, uh, I, I don't know, no. But what was really interesting about it for me, just in terms of as a fan of these things, it was looking at the set design in The Sunmakers and then looking at the set design of the set that I was on and realising the sets aren't any better. It's just the way that they light them and the way that lenses work now, you can get away with so much more and make it look so much better. Talking of things that look really, really good, we're here to look at some comic strip panels. I've asked everyone on the panel to bring a panel to the panel. You can see these images on my website, kevfcomicartist.com, and on my Twitter, and hopefully on the podcast page, depending where you get your podcasts from. But don't worry, you shouldn't need to see these images because we're going to describe them. Peter, can we have a look at yours first? By all means. So, innocent listener at home, you shouldn't need to be able to see this picture because we are about to describe Peter's submission. Aren't we, Beth? Oh, yeah. What are you looking at? <laughs> what you can see is uh, the silhouette of, of somebody holding a cigarette with the smoke billowing around it, saying, Miss Grant, may I see you for a moment? And Miss Grant is saying, oh, yes, yes. And you can see the, tar the top of a 135mm rifle scope within the silhouette of the person... Um, Who's, who's doing the looking. Um, automatically showing my ignorance, I thought that was a camera. I thought I was looking at the silhouette of a uh, person uh, presenting a chat show, because the guy with the fag on looks like it's a 1970s chat show. Way behind him, he's in silhouette, and then closer to us would be the camera, although, of course, that's way too small for a camera. You're quite right. It's obviously a rifle. He's in silhouette, and then beyond, there's the woman. Very heavy black eye makeup. Yeah. The style of hair drawing and the style of the uh, makeup drawing is much more like the stuff I remember seeing in Jackie and Diana, which my sister got, and Princess Tina, those yeah. DC Thompson girls comics. She looks like this, uh, the drawing 
drawings that you'd have on the front of dressmaking patterns that you could buy. It's saying 1968 to 1972, mm. just in the eye makeup, the lipstick, the hair. Uh, I can't, I don't know what to make of the fact that the woman has no ears. Because this is a time when earrings were a big deal and ears were still a thing. Maybe it, maybe the, the artist is the Rob Liefeld of ears. <laughs> well, yes, and with a, a uniformity of lines, suggesting it's been done with a dip pen mm. rather than with a brush. I'm doing this for the benefit of the panelologists out there, the people who like to study this kind of thing. Uh, the flowing of the costume is done with the same. So we've got a fine drip pen for those lines, and then we filled in solid black. It reminds me of some of the uh, sort of like early early to mid 70s marvel stuff but i think that's just the color scheme which is just of that era well if it wasn't for the fact that there's a page number set into the panel we're at the bottom of page three yeah. i would have thought we were looking at a british comic but that page three thing is much more of an, yeah. of an american thing the flat colors don't look like it's been scanned from a 1970s comic. So it might be a reprint of a 1970s comic, reprinted uh, sometime from the uh, late 80s or 90s onwards, which is where you would get these flat colours from. So it's something that was worth collecting up into an edition. Um, I'm going to hazard a guess. Is it from Wonder Woman from that period in the 1970s where she was really down to earth and didn't have a superhero costume? Peter, do you want to tell us where, where's this from? It's from 1969. Uh, it is American. And it was written by Stan Lee. That give you any clues? Well, except that, that makes it Marvel. It does make uh, it. And I was wrong yeah. with DC. Yeah, yeah. Because well, that's what I was thinking. Stan Lee's dialogue is unmistakable pretty much everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's from a romance comic called Our Love Story. Wow. Oh, wow. Uh, wait a minute. Is it Jim Steranko? It is Jim Steranko. Yes. It's quite uncharacteristic for Stranko, isn't well, it? Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, the sort of, you know, the, the swirliness is kind of Stranko. And he did, um, he did quite often do things where he'd use spot colour or spot black and white. Uh, so that, that sort of contrasty thing between the black and white foreground and the colour background, that you see in some of the sort of, you know, Nick Fury strips that he did well one of the big things about Steranko is the fact that he was not afraid to um uh, to magpie techniques from other artists um i was aware of that when i saw a lot of techniques that i thought were all invented by Steranko and subsequently realized that i'd uh, when i discovered will eisner yeah. that i was now seeing them for the first time so they were done for the first time in 1948 forgotten about and rediscovered or reclaimed by jim Steranko. Yeah. but eisner was the one that i spotted way back when because there was a uh, harvey comics did a spirit compilation in the mid 60s which was the first time i'd seen you know uh, will eisner do anything and then when Steranko came along like a year or two later i was like oh this guy's you know obviously influenced by the spirit for my generation, the Steranko work we first saw was when we got Captain Britain, the weekly comic, and his Nick Fury Agent of Shields, which was his uh, defining work for Marvel from the 1960s, was reprinted, and it was reprinted in colour, which was a first for these British reprints. And it was reprinted bigger than the Americans had seen it, and it was in litho, so it looked better than the Americans had originally seen it half a dozen years yeah. earlier. And Immediately after that, he then did uh, what was termed by many as the first graphic novel, a thing called uh, Chandler in Red Tide, uh, which was done uh, with a 
panel of picture with a panel of dialogue underneath. It slightly sounds like Rupert Bear the way I describe it, but it was a paperback length book in colour. And he was really experimenting with new ways of doing these things, drawing from photographs. So he had another style again. Uh, but Stranko just he really carved into new territory that nobody had done at that time. And this really shows how many different styles he could he could adopt. This comes from a collection of uh, Taranko stuff that includes his Captain America stories and a few other things. And this is kind of like tagged onto the end of it. So, so it came as a surprise to me. I'm, the one thing about Taranko and reprints, I find, is that the colour is usually atrocious. Um, and you, and I and a number of people have said over the years, you know, what we'd really like to see is a nice big black and white, you know, coffee table collection of this stuff. Colouring of comics from the 60s, 70s, well, and older, is, is, is a problem, isn't it? Because if you're true to the way the original viewer saw it, you'd have to print the black lines in grey and you'd have to make all the colours go out of register. Yeah. And then if you take the colours and make them true, as this reprint has done, they're garish, they're far brighter than you would have let them go as because the colors came out muted when they printed them in the old process uh, so your other alternative is to recolor it and then you get things looking like they neither belong in the original era of the 60s and the 70s and don't belong in the present day because they're they're done in uh, decades well apart. you also look at you see stuff where it's, it's like they've scanned the original comics and done it badly so the whole thing just looks like mud now of course you get collector's editions which will actually scan from the original artwork will show you unrobbed out pencil and blue pencil and i think they distract you from the story because if i'm seeing the shadow of a voice bubble i'm no longer in the comics world yeah. i'm in the paste-up world yeah. Staranko was one of the first names that sprang to mind and i thought you know there, there are some extraordinary bits where um like in the in one of the captain america stories he goes into the salvador dali sequence like a dream sequence yes and I thought, yeah, that's fantastic. But of course, it's got dialogue all over it. And it's got, you know, Bucky in the costume. And you think, yeah, this is going to be easy to guess. And while I was looking for that, I stumbled across this. So Stranko did Dali a couple of times, didn't he? He did him in the Captain America story and he does them on a, a Nick Fury Agent yeah. Shield cover. Yeah. Which again is just Stranko magpieing. But so many people forget that there are other things to draw on rather than previous comics so i think it benefits everyone when someone like stranko looked widely at pop art and looked widely at surrealism yeah. and then ripped it off and put it wholesale into his comics well yeah i think it's at the, it's kind of at the heart of comics really is the fact that um uh you know will eisner went to the movies a lot obviously and was just stealing yeah. left right and center um from orson wells and everybody well isn't the bigger thing now that uh, you're much more likely to get homages or references or nodding yeah. um indulgent tributes because everybody knows or everybody can google or they'll tomorrow be a youtube video saying do you see where this comic swipe came from <laughs> and telling you the whole story yeah. And then on the other hand of that, you also get people who go and treat things that are uh, clearly artistic devices as if it was a mistake. Calling out George Lucas for a mistake, which is fair enough, there are plenty of them in his work, but the the fact that he'd chosen to do um, a wipe which closes up on C-3PO's face uh, as a transition scene from one to another and going, well, that was a terrible mistake. How did that get through the editing process? Like, <laughs> no, it was an artistic choice. Talking of artistic choices... <laughs> 
I think now let's have a look, Beth, at yours. For the benefit of the listener at home, you shouldn't need to see this picture. If you want to, it's on my website, kevfcomicartist.com, and on my Twitter. And it should be on the podcast, uh, wherever you're getting your podcasts from. But as I say, you shouldn't need to see it because we are about to describe it, aren't we, Peter? Yep. You want me to take this one? Please. Okay. Uh, It's a rooftop scene, and there's a girl in a very short skirt uh, who has just left the top of the building on riding a motorbike, and she's going, bye, Felicia, and chasing her on the rooftop is a running figure of a girl with white hair who, from the Felicia, uh, I'm going to assume is the black cat, and she's going, what, do I know you? to the other girl for the benefit of the panelologists listening who are sticklers for these things i would immediately be critical of the order in which the voice bubbles appear because by felicia is at the top of the panel and do i know you uh, in response to having had her name felicia said is at the bottom of the panel but surely the felicia should appear to the left of the do i know you panel maybe i'm wrong about that i don't know maybe it doesn't matter no, i think, you're right. it looks I think great. they should have reversed the panel basically uh, the bike's got to go from left to right but then I'd want to see the person on the bike before I saw the person on the left. Do you know, this is suggesting to me it might have been done Marvel method. But Marvel method, um, everybody uh, is probably familiar with, is where the artist draws the picture and then the writer comes back in and adds the words over the top. And you can sometimes get this sort of thing happening. Black cat, are we saying? Yeah, I mean... I was going to say black black canary. No, no, no. I think it's black cat from Spider-Man. Uh, who was called <gasps> Felicia, if I remember rightly. Oh. So it is Marvel Method. I'm guessing it's from one of the Spider-Man titles, um, probably 1980s. And I am guessing from the colouring that it is from the 21st century, but I'll say it's uh, between 2000 and 2010. And um, I'll have to be proven wrong when we find out it's a Marvel title. But I'm just going to say everything about it to me says a DC title. And I'll say that it's from the Batman universe. Beth, how wrong am I? <laughs> how wrong are we both? You're both quite wrong. Uh, but it's certainly closer than I think I would have got trying to come into this blind had I not re- realised. Um, this is uh, Marvel. It is from 2018. And it is uh, the um, uh, unbelievable Gwenpool is the character. Oh, okay. Right. Who is one of my favourite of the Marvel characters. Um, uh, and this this panel has lived in my head for such a long time <laughs> since the first time I saw it. Uh, it's just, I, th- I must think about it like three or four times a day. Um, and I've no idea, like, there's just, it's, it's one of those things that perfectly captures... What what it is that I love about comics and my sense of humour, I think, in terms of what it in in terms of how I would go and um, if I was writing for Marvel or if I was writing a, a film based on a comic book, this is the sort of thing that I would have in it. Uh, if you know what I mean, um, the By Felicia thing is a reference to the Ice Cube movie Friday. Whoa, 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 whoa! The Ice Cube movie. Oh wait, Ice Cube the person. Yeah, yeah. And the movie, movie called, called Friday, Friday. Yeah, with yeah. him in. Yeah. Sorry, an old person catches up. Yeah, there's a, a character called Felicia who's uh, constantly, who he has absolutely no interest in despite her flirting with him. And there's a thing about, you know, uh, and, and that sort of became a meme across the internet of the, like, by Felicia, when you've had enough of somebody and you want them to go away. Gwenpool herself uh, has, the, has the pink speech bubble as well, which 
uh, often in comics goes and denotes that they're not from the same universe as everybody else. Uh, in that she's from our world, the actual world where we wander about and buy Marvel comics. And through something that we don't quite know, she's ended up in uh, the uh, Earth 616 of the Marvel comics. So Gwen- Gwenpool breaks the fourth wall. Totally. But also, people always think of it as being a bit more like uh, Deadpool. but Because uh, the number of people I've spoken to, oh, is that like Gwen Stacy, but as Deadpool? And it's it's not at all. Her name is actually Gwen Pool. It's uh, two separate names. But when she goes to get her costume, they go and uh, make it into a single one and go, all right, okay, well, I'll give you something kind of Deadpool-themed. And yet she is a comic book nerd from our reality who's trapped inside these things. So she knows everybody's secrets. She knows who everybody is. She knows all of their backstories. She's read everything. So, uh, And she also knows that because she's the star of the comic book, she can't die. So she's prepared to take ridiculous risks. All of that seems to come together in this single panel with Felicia, who's obviously spent since the, <laughs> since the 60s with Spider-Man, desperately trying to hide you know, her actual identity from other people. And for this to have come into it. And and it's just, so something about it is just always uh, stuck in my head since the first time I saw it. I'm feeling that because I didn't drink this in as a kid, I might never catch up to speed with it. The pinkness of her voice bubble, and I'd seen the pinkness in her voice bubble. I don't think I was so sure as to what it actually connoted. By Felicia, the meme, listener, did you know that? I sure did. Okay, they all knew that. They all knew that. <laughs> And the artist's uh, a Brazilian artist called uh, Danilo Baruth, who's done all sorts of stuff. For, for Marvel in the last sort of 10 years has really tried to go and find people from outside the, the, the core of what the artists and writers were throughout the 60s and 70s, you know. Um, and we can see that with like a lot of the, the reboots that they've done. For, uh, and for example, with Miles Morales, Spider-Man, it's all sort of part of that. Um, Moon Girl as well, who that's had a reboot recently. That's um, that has you know that they've they've started bringing people in from all over the world from all sorts of different backgrounds. And for me, it's made comics so much more exciting in the last sort of ten years to sort of find these new stories and to see where they can go and to, to uh, from people who've grown up in an entirely different world from the one that I was was growing up in, but a world that I found myself part of and a world that I absolutely adore. And it seems that the comics, the Marvel comics, are racing ahead of the Marvel movies. The Marvel movies largely being made uh, about the characters and the comics from 40 and 50 years ago, and the current comics doing something way, way different. Yeah, and I think uh, we're going to start to see that. Well, that's sort of over this next year. Now that they've started to do the Marvel TV series, we're going to see more of that changing, I think, in part because they've now started bringing in some more of the sort of like the characters that you didn't really see before that but we've got Ms Marvel coming up later on this year um exec produced by Bishop Bishop K Ali who was uh, a comedian on the UK stand up circuit who went off to Hollywood yes. and is now and is now show running this so yeah and yeah, it's exciting. How do you consume your Marvel comics? Are you getting them as as floppies, as we call them, or digital? Until the pandemic, uh, mostly still, uh, you know, single issues, uh, occasional, you know, trades, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I've got like three long boxes under my bed right now of just all of my comics. And one of the things that I do whenever I get a really well paid job is I go and buy one of the uh, rarer comics that I want that's too expensive to sort of buy the original. What would be an example of a, a rare? comic that you sought out that you so want well 
I think my favourite example of that, uh, from the mid-70s when Stan was on such a roll that nobody over at Marvel ever wanted to tell him that he'd come up with a terrible idea, um, in the era of when they were doing the giant-sized comics, like the things like the giant-sized X-Men that they um, yeah. that uh, included the, the Days of Future Past, past storyline and, and, and so on. But the one that I bought uh, most recently was the uh, issue number one of the hilariously poorly titled Giant-Sized Man-Thing. <laughs> is that with Howard the Duck? Howard the Duck isn't actually in, in that one, but yeah, yeah, Howard the Duck was related. And again, Howard the Duck is one of the main characters in Gwenpool as well, which is one of the references that I love within this. This is one of the things that I that means I have to get more up to speed because Howard the Duck was my favourite as a kid, the, the original Steve Gerber yes. and uh, Gene Colan Howards. And then Howard uh, disappeared for a while or was badly used for a while Yeah, as well. absolutely. Um, and I think a lot of those characters that are like that, that are more at the periphery of things, because I think for a long time comics went through this thing of uh, they're for kids and then all of the kids who who were into them grew up and now they're for adults and now they have to take themselves too seriously and these things that don't really take them seriously are not for the real fans and so we don't want people to be part of it and i and i feel like it it feels like comics are finally or at least the american comics of the 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 superhero comics are evolving beyond that again and so you're able to get that in one of the best comics i've I've read recently was a recent run of is it spectacular spider ham peter porker spider ham peter Peter porker Porker. yeah yeah a spider who was bitten by a radioactive pig and uh, develops all of the powers of a, a, a pig with with Spider-Man's powers, who ends up in our reality. I really, really love those stories because they can go and take the things that are super serious within these things and have really serious points that they're talking about, about the way that we experience the world and what it's like to be an outsider and what it's like to grow up within that and how we re- re- relate to the world and finding our truth in this world, however it is that we do that. But also being able to have things that are ridiculous ridiculously silly on the top of them well, i was just going to say uh, howard the duck um made me remember there was a thing it was a sort of one-off marvel anthology called i think bizarre adventures in about sometime in the early 80s i'm guessing um yeah. and it was you know a collection of just the one-off strips and there was a howard the duck story and i can't remember who did the art or the writing but the premise was basically the same as It's a Wonderful Life, you know, and Howard is shown, you know, what the world would be like without him. And everybody is happier. Everybody's better off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a very much, there's a there's a panel in, uh, in the Spider-Ham where it's got all of the other uh, Marvel superheroes of that world all just laying into him about what we don't like him because he's he's constantly going on about cryptocurrency and he's doing this and he's doing that and he's really annoying and he ate all of my food and you know the their world's version of the black bolt saying i was literally about to scream at you then even though i know that it would have killed everyone in this dimension what a marvelous recommendation and indeed pair of recommendations we've had today peter led us to look at the whole range of work by jim steranko and bethany has brought in for us a gwenpool oh who created gwenpool um oh actually do you know i don't even know that to be honest <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> uh, but the artist's work we were looking at was uh, Danilo, Danilo Berry. Yeah, yeah right? that's correct, yeah. Peter, Bethany, thank you so much for coming to join us today. That was Comic Cuts. If you've enjoyed it or have any questions, you can find us at our various social medias. Uh, Peter, where will we find you on the socials? Instagram, that's a, probably about it. I mean, I'm on Facebook, but there's friends only. So. And Beth, where do we find you? 
I'm on all of them. I've, uh, I've got my uh, Twitter, uh, Bethany Black, spelt with two Fs, because I worked with a guy who uh, had never seen my name written down, and he was from the east end of London, and so he wrote it phonetically as B-E-F-F-E-R-N-I-E, Bethany. Uh, Bethany Black is on, and that's the same for my uh, Twitch handle. I do a daily show on there where I, I just talk rubbish for a couple of hours whilst people join in. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the socials and search for Bethany Black. Uh, Google Peter Hogan. And if you haven't seen Resident Alien, what the hell have you been doing with the last year of your TV consumption? You'll find me uh, on Twitter at KevF Comic Artist and on the website kevfcomicartist.com. Please click subscribe to be sure of hearing every episode of this when it comes out. Thanks again to Peter Hogan and to Bethany Black and to you at home for listening. I've been KevF and this has been Comic Cuts the panel show.